Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to... Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody. If you were following along on social media over the weekend, you saw that I had a first attempt of recording this episode on Sunday, but Sunday is Max's day off of work, and I also have my mom in town and two dogs. So you can imagine it was pretty loud, especially since my mom has no capability of controlling the volume of her voice and the cowboys were playing. What can I say? So Max was going to be loud at some point anyways. And I got about 10 minutes in and I was just like, there's this is impossible. (laughs) I was pausing like every few seconds to like wait for them to quiet down and then get a few more seconds in. And it was just it was too much. So I am recording late. It is 10 a.m. on a Monday morning here in Los Angeles, and I am here to talk about a woman who I am pretty shocked that she isn't mentioned more often during a lot of the episodes that we've had throughout the last almost five years, because she is the face of so many of the cases that involve women's rights, civil rights, um, anybody's rights, truly, equality, and that is Gloria Allred. She's an attorney most known for her high-profile and often controversial cases involving the protection of women's rights. You might think of her as the loud and angry woman screaming out about equality on every news station and talk show from the 70s until today. If you're like me, you love that about her, and you will love knowing even more about the ways that she's fought for civil rights her entire adult life. Throughout the episode, I'm definitely going to be getting into the sexism involved in how we think about Gloria Allred as well. Right at the top, I want to say that I got a lot of my information from two primary sources, and then I kind of went out and did Google searches on specifics from that. But I watched an amazing documentary on Netflix called Seeing Allred. I highly recommend it. It was so well done, and it covered the case of Bill Cosby, in which she was representing 28 of the women who came out and accused him. And then throughout the documentary, you know, it has flashbacks about her life and who she is and great interviews and things like that. And she herself is interviewed in the documentary. So a lot of the quotes that I'm getting and things like that will be from the interview that she gave for that documentary. I also read a really wonderful article from The New Yorker, which was also published around the same time that the Netflix documentary was covering. But she gave a few, you know, different answers and insights in that interview as well. And um, from there, I was able to kind of go off and look further into some of the cases that she's been involved in and things like that. So I read some more kind of like legal documents and things like that that I was able to find online as well. So I really did my best to give you a very clear picture of her life and also the kind of work that she has done throughout her career. So let's go back to the very beginning. It's a very fine place to start. You would know that reference if you are a fan of The Sound of Music. Anyways, she was born Gloria Rachel Bloom in Philadelphia on July 3rd, 1941. She's a fellow Cancer. Hello. 
Her family is Jewish. Her dad worked as a door-to-door salesman, and her British-born mother was a stay-at-home wife and mother. They didn't have a whole lot of money growing up, but Gloria in the documentary remembers her father trying to shield her from that. And there's this story that she tells about going to the movie theater and wanting to see a movie with her dad. And he bought one ticket and was like, you know, I don't really want to see this movie. You go and enjoy yourself. I'll pick you up when it's done. And Gloria was like, "Okay, you know, whatever. And it wasn't until she was an adult that she looked back and realized that it was probably because he couldn't afford a ticket. And I just think that's a really sweet story. She grew up in a Catholic neighborhood in Philly, which wasn't easy as she comes from a Jewish family, and they faced quite a bit of anti-Semitism. There isn't a whole lot of information about this online or in the documentary, but I do think it's important to state. She was accepted into the Philadelphia High School for Girls, which at the time was really hard to get into as there were only a few schools of its kind. In the documentary, we meet her high school best friend, Fern, who describes Gloria as kind, inclusive, and bossy. Gloria was a cheerleader and the class treasurer, so she was pretty well-rounded. Another peek into her personality as a high schooler, her French teacher nicknamed her Jean d'Arc. After graduating high school, Gloria attended the University of Pennsylvania. Like I mentioned, their family wasn't super well off and Gloria wasn't sure that she would be able to attend college at all until her father told her that he had been secretly saving money for her education. (laughs) At the time, UPenn was 93% male and 7% female, so there were many men for Gloria to choose from. But within the first week of school, she met her first husband, Peyton Huddleston Bray Jr. In the documentary, Gloria describes him as handsome, funny, and he seems like he was a real catch. They were married when Gloria was 19 years old, and she got pregnant right away during her sophomore year of college, which I can't imagine. I know this was something that was more common for women going to school back then, that they would get married at least when they were in college, but I can't imagine being married at 19 and then being pregnant my second year of college. I, mm, there's no way. That little baby was Lisa Bloom, and she was born on September 20th, 1961. Now, I say it that way because Lisa Bloom is now an attorney herself, and I'm going to get to her later. Gloria was then shuttled into a domestic routine that did not suit her. She remembers ironing in front of the TV, watching I Love Lucy, and admiring that Lucy wanted and had more out of life than being married to Desi, and she wanted the same. On top of being a dutiful wife and mother, she was also still attending classes. She would finish her English degree and graduate on time. She wrote her undergraduate thesis on Ralph Ellison, Alex Haley, and James Baldwin, all famous black authors, as she was so interested in civil rights. Shortly after Peyton went into boot camp for the military, Gloria was notified that he was in the hospital for mental health issues. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. According to Gloria, his moods and behaviors became so erratic and dangerous for her daughter that she decided she had to leave, and they divorced in 1962. She went back to her mother's house with her daughter when she left Peyton, and never told anyone why she was getting a divorce from him. According to Gloria, you just didn't talk about it at the time. I would also assume that there wasn't the same amount of vocabulary that we have today in discussing mental health issues, especially something like bipolar disorder, and I'm sure the stigma was also even more heavily negative at the time as well. 
People in her life would try to encourage her to go back to him and so on and so forth. And she just probably felt really stuck because she felt like she couldn't explain why she couldn't go back. It wasn't safe for her and her daughter. Unfortunately, in 2003, Peyton took his own life after years and years of struggling with mental health problems. After she left Peyton, she wasn't receiving child support money, and she knew that she needed to provide for both herself and for her daughter. She took a job as an assistant buyer at Gimbel's department store, making $75 a week. But when she found out that her male counterparts made $90 a week, she asked about the discrepancy. It was told that her colleague needed to earn a, quote, family wage, though he was, according to Gloria, a bachelor. She wasn't being paid any child support, so she needed another job ASAP if they weren't going to pay her what she was worth. And you know, even at this point, Gloria's not, like, sitting around letting some guy make more money than her. So she quit and took a test to become a public school teacher. She got a job as a high school teacher for an all-boys, predominantly black school in Philly called Benjamin Franklin High. She continued her education, earning a master's degree in 1963. After graduating, she and Lisa moved all the way across the country to Los Angeles in 1966. Gloria said, quote, if I'm going to be poor, at least I'll be poor in the sunshine. Amen to that, Gloria. After she moved, she hired an attorney and Peyton was arrested for not paying child support, but the charges were soon dropped afterwards. She and her daughter moved into a rented house just south of the 101 and shared it with some of Gloria's girlfriends. This sounds like so much fun. Gloria's friends also had daughters and had recently left their husbands, and it kind of seems like a younger version of the Golden Girls with kids. Now, if you know anything about the cases that Gloria Allred typically takes, they typically have something involved with sexual assault. When asked about why she is so devoted to the cause of justice for women who have been sexually abused, she responds, I thought what happened to me was just bad luck. When she was in her 20s, she took a vacation with a girlfriend to Mexico. There, she met a doctor who invited her out with him that night. She agreed. When they met up, the doctor told her that he had a few patients to check in on at the hospital and asked if she would go with him. She agreed and went with him to check on his patients at the hospital. After he was done with that, he said he had a few more patients to check on outside of the hospital. Again, she agreed to go with him. When they arrived at a home, it was empty. He pulled out a gun and he raped her. Gloria didn't tell anybody what had happened to her. She said she didn't want to tell the police because who would they believe, her or the doctor? She found out later that she had gotten pregnant as a result of the rape. In the documentary, she clarifies that this was before the passing of Roe v. Wade, and the only option for women at the time was, quote, back alley abortions. Whoever performed the abortion for Gloria did not do a very good job because she became incredibly ill and became so sick that she had to go to the hospital. She almost died. As she was being treated, the nurse caring for her looked at her and said, This will teach you a lesson. Gloria said that through her own experience, she wanted to help other women go from being a victim, to being a survivor, to being a tool for change. And I think that that statement is so unbelievably important. Because I don't think it's everybody's responsibility as a former victim to be a tool for change. But I think that... It should be. (laughs) I think that anybody who has experienced abuse like this or has experienced anything in life that has a negative stigma that's not being talked about, I think that the more 
we can heal and become whole and then teach other people how to be that way, the more we are going to create change in the world. And I think that Gloria had a major life shift in that moment, realizing that this terrible thing happened to her. And as she goes through this life experience, she realizes she's not alone in that incident that happened to her. This has happened to probably every one of her friends in some way, shape, or form. So instead of staying quiet about it once Gloria found out, she decided to be loud as hell. Back to Los Angeles in the 60s. Now, we've already discussed that Gloria had a very strong tie to the civil rights movement or pull to the civil rights movement when she was in college and was very, very fascinated by the black authors when she was studying for her English degree. And now as a teacher, she felt it was important to work within school districts that had been forgotten. And a lot of those districts were predominantly black or were inhabited by people of color. In 1965, the Watts Rebellion occurred in the Watts area of Los Angeles. They began on August 11th in 1965 when Marquette Fry, a 21-year-old black man, was pulled over for drunk driving. After he failed the sobriety test, officers attempted to arrest him, which Fry resisted with assistance from his mother, Raina. The physical altercation ensued in which Marquette was hit in the face with a baton as a group of onlookers gathered. This was then followed by six days of civil unrest, which resulted in 34 deaths and over $40 million in property damages. This was the city's worst unrest until Rodney King in 1991. And when I googled Rodney King, he was born in 1965, which was the year of the Watts Rebellion. As a result of the unrest, the town of Watts was in shambles and the schools were in desperate need of teachers. So Gloria began teaching at a high school in Watts and became the first full-time female staff member in the United Teachers of Los Angeles, the union which represents LA's teachers. Gloria became very active in the union and helped organize protests and then went to protests, even bringing her daughters, supporting the teachers and the students in her community. It was during this time that she would meet her second husband, William Allred. William then adopted Lisa, and they formed a new little family with a house in Burbank where Gloria would invite her students over for pool parties. She eventually left her job at the school to join the Los Angeles Teachers Association, organizing teachers during the East L.A. student walkouts. She then returned to teaching and earned the credentials to become a principal from USC. She said her goal at the time was to be a principal in Watts. She said, but this was the time of the Black Power movement, and they wanted African-American principals in those high schools. I agreed with them, and when they offered me a position in the Valley, I said, thanks, but no thanks. Something about Gloria that I really respect is that she always listened to other people and responded. Being a white woman myself, I do my best to always listen to the people of color around me in a room and take their lead instead of being like, well, this is what I want. I want to be a principal and I want to be helpful. So why won't, let you, why won't you let me be helpful? And I think that it's people like Gloria that set a really wonderful example for how to be a good ally. It was her new husband, William, who encouraged her to go after a law degree since she was doing so well in the teachers union. She received her law degree with honors from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles in 1974. While in law school, she began going to Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA, meetings and joined the NOW chapter in Los Angeles as a volunteer. 
Also while in school, the new governor at the time wasn't holding up his campaign promise of appointing more female judges, and Gloria was asked to do a press conference about it. Gloria was new to the whole thing, and she had never done a press conference or spoken to a large audience in any way before. But I'm sure the people around her saw the impassioned way that she spoke and knew that she would be perfect in front of the camera. Her heartfelt words in the press conference resulted in a lot of attention on both the issue and Gloria herself. The press started approaching Gloria more and more often with questions on her thoughts and commentary on women's rights. In the documentary, she discussed that it was an intentional decision to appear strong and without fear when she is on television and giving interviews. And throughout the week when I've been studying Gloria, I've been defending her by saying that over and over and over again, that a lot of times when we see someone's personality on television, it's a conscious decision of how they want to be portrayed. And I think especially for women in the 70s, you couldn't show that you were meek or afraid or not willing to be as powerful as every other man in television interviews. So she was just as loud and boisterous and out there as any man would have been. And that's where I think the sexism against Gloria Allred starts. And I think the feelings that are harbored against her are in both men and women. In an article from The New Yorker, they describe Gloria's notoriety in the press and eventually in the courtroom by saying, Gloria Allred may be the most famous practicing attorney in the United States. She has attained that renown less through litigation, though she has done plenty of that, then through a blend of high-profile legal advocacy and public relations. The mention of Allred to another trial lawyer often elicits a discreet pause, then a slightly raised eyebrow, followed by something like, Gloria is really, really great at what she does. What she does, as far as the public can see, is show up in front of TV cameras, five feet two in her black turtleneck, with her gold jewelry and her brightly colored jacket, and her clients by her side, and deliver her message with bulldog amplum. Her voice has the texture of pavement, dark, rough, reassuring, consistent. She has a dry sense of humor, which these days tends to emerge in a bemused tone or a sly look, and in general willingness to play herself as a character. She soon created a law firm practice with two of her classmates, Nathan Goldberg and Michael Morocco. These two were interviewed in the documentary, and I love how they seem to just go along with whatever Gloria was fired up about this time. Allred, Morocco, and Goldberg grew during the 70s and 80s, eventually creating annual revenues exceeding $2.5 million. They quickly became known for their cases involving discrimination, harassment, sexual abuse, and employment. In 1979, Gloria and her daughter were shopping at a Savon drugstore when Lisa, according to her, pointed out that there were different sections for boys' and girls' toys. Gloria saw this and knew something had to be done about it. So in 1979, she represented seven children and their parents in a lawsuit against the Savon drugstore chain to stop the store from designating a boys' and girls' toy section. In her argument, Gloria stated that sex-designated toys were misleading and deceptive advertising that denied children the, quote, equal opportunity to enjoy toys of their choice. Wow, that was really hard to say. In an article from UPI.com, it says, A major Southern California store chain agreed Tuesday to stop telling boys and girls what toys they ought to play with. Store officials say they would take all the signs down within six months and promise not to put up any other signs indicating that children of one sex would enjoy certain toys more than others. Gloria stated after the win, We congratulate Savon for moving history forward. 
1980, Gloria successfully fought against L.A. County's practice of shackling pregnant prisoners during labor and childbirth. In 1981, when California State Senator John G. Schmitz, that's another hard thing to say, presiding over hearings to outlaw abortion, she presented him with a chastity belt. This made Schmitz seem mad, and he attacked her in the press by calling her a, quote, sick butch lawyeress, LOL. So she sued him for libel and eventually won a settlement of $20,000 and an apology. The press release that Schmitz made was entitled Attack of the Bully Dykes and referred to an audience of, quote, hard Jewish and arguably female faces who had come in to support a woman's right to choose abortion. So now we're going to be anti-Semitic, too. In an article from the LA Times in 1986, it reads, quote, Los Angeles attorney Gloria Allred today won $20,000 in a public apology from former state Senator John Schmitz, who conceded that the feminist lawyer is, quote, not a slick butch lawyeress, as he described her in a 1981 press release. Well, don't take the compliment part back. When asked about the money, Gloria said that all she wanted was an apology from Schmitz and that that would satisfy her more than all the money in the world. She stated that all the money she received in the settlement would be donated to members of the groups she feels were maligned in the press by what Schmidt said, including the National Council of Jewish Women, the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center, and the California Abortion Rights Action League. In 1984, she began working with a client named Rita Milla, a devoutly religious woman who claimed to have been regularly raped by the Catholic priest she grew up with. Gloria spent almost two whole decades working on those claims to eventually help her win that case. In 1984, she filed a suit against a dry cleaner that charged women 40 cents more than men for dry cleaning. Less than five hours after the suit was filed, the company agreed to adjust their prices. In 1985, she teamed up with anti-pornography feminist Catherine McKinnon and drafted a version of the Anti-Pornography Civil Rights Ordinance in L.A. County. Now, before I go any further, the naming of this I feel is super dated, and I don't super agree with the, quote, anti-pornography movement, but I also think that I'm maybe not fully understanding it, and it might just be kind of a dated term, because... The legislation the ordinance suggests, they believe that the porn industry is a violation of women's civil rights and that it doesn't allow women that have been harmed while doing porn to file for lawsuits in civil courts. So I'm not necessarily sure that it is like against women doing porn, although I know that there was a whole branch of feminism that was kind of against the adult film industry and sex work and things like that. So I don't want to get it twisted. That's what I understand from what I've read. But uh, I do like the fact that she was fighting for essentially workers' rights because sex work is work. And she wanted to ensure that people were protected in their jobs. And the backstory of this is interesting in and of itself because the idea of combating pornography through civil rights litigation began when a woman named Linda Lovelace released a memoir called Ordeal, which discussed the making of the film Deep Throat and the assault that occurred in its making. Gloria did a lot of work for going against people who were anti-Semitic. In 1985, she and her partner Michael Morocco won a settlement and an apology from a group that had been taunting Auschwitz survivors. There was a group of Holocaust deniers, and they offered $50,000 to anyone who could produce evidence that Jewish people were gassed at the Auschwitz concentration camp. 
A man named Mel Mermelstein, who had survived Auschwitz, provided his own testimony, other eyewitness accounts, and ashes from the camp. The group published a letter accusing him of perpetrating a hoax. Mermelstein sued and eventually received $90,000, a formal apology, and an on-the-record acknowledgement of the truth that 6 million Jewish people lost their lives during the Holocaust. Way to go, Gloria. I love that she always makes them give public apologies. That's like the best part. In 1987, she took on L.A.'s All-Male Friars Club, an exclusive private club over its membership discrimination policies. Eventually, they let Gloria in, and she had quite a welcome. She said she wanted to use the steam room, but there were a bunch of naked men in there who didn't want her to come in. Well, she knocked on the door and said she was coming in anyway. When she walked in, she whipped out a tape measure while singing Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's and let's just say that ended that. Gloria also fought passionately for single mothers' right to receive child support. When Lisa was in college, she gave her mom a call one day to check in. They chatted for a few minutes while Lisa filled her mom in on her classes and so on. When Lisa asked her mom what she was up to, Gloria informed her that she was staying in the district attorney's office overnight. He hadn't shown up to a meeting they had planned to discuss child support, so she decided to do an impromptu sit-in until he was able to meet with her. She was locked in overnight, and the next morning she was carted off by security, but not quietly. Here's a quote from the Netflix documentary Seeing All Red. I think it's best to hear it from Gloria herself. You should be using these resources to arrest these fathers who are breaking the law and avoiding their child support responsibilities. We want our child support for these children. We want every law obeyed, and we don't want innocent mothers and children arrested. We want those fathers arrested who are not paying their child support. Iron Rhino, where are you? Why aren't you taking your lawful responsibilities? Why are you in hiding? Yeah, she did that. I think now is a good time for a quick break. All right, I'm back. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. In February 1988, a state court ruled that women will be able to collect 16 years of retroactive child support payments from a Roman Catholic priest who fathered a daughter and hid to avoid payments. This case is absolutely bonkers. The priest, John Christensen, who was the child's teacher, priest, and therapist at the time, abandoned the girl that he had assaulted and her baby when it was born. He was eventually found after 16 years in a Rolling Hills school district where he was working with troubled teens. Gross. Gloria hailed the decision as a precedent-setting case that will allow hundreds of children to collect support that is owed to them. Now, this whole incident with the priest was a whole decade before Boston Globe's landmark investigative series into the Catholic Church's methods of systematic concealment. Gloria has also always been a strong supporter of gay marriage and gay rights, and it all began in the 1980s. She would fight with any opponent on television who argued the idea of, quote, traditional family values, to which Gloria believes represents a lack of right to marry interracially and limiting women's rights as well. That's something that I think that we don't always remember, is that when we talk about marriage rights, a lot of times it's not just same-sex marriage that we're talking about, and that's important enough, but we also have to think about interracial marriage. She represented Paul Jasperson in 1989, a man with AIDS who had been turned away from a nail salon in West Hollywood. Unfortunately, Paul died before the trial, but Gloria continued on for him. In 1993, she sued a restaurant in L.A. called Papa Shoe, which was known for its romantic booths, after a same-sex couple was denied from dining in the special section of the establishment. Gloria was also the person to file the first lawsuit in California that challenged the state's ban on same-sex marriage in 2004. Gloria was friends with the plaintiffs Robin Tyler and Diane Olson and made it her personal mission to see them together in marriage. There's a video of her showing up at an L.A. County courthouse along with Robin and Diane as they asked for a marriage license, and they were denied. Gloria then told the clerk that she would be back again and again until her friends could get their license. Robin and Diane became the first same-sex couple to marry in the state of California after their case won. Unfortunately, after being together for 18 years and being married for three, they divorced. Well, they have the right to do so. 
Gloria has been a prominent figure at the West Hollywood Pride Parade for years, which I did not know. I'm going to have to go this year. And she often rides in a car with her friend, a drag queen who dresses as Gloria, and they have a party in the parade. It's really cute because there's a scene in the documentary where her friend is like, you know, when she used to first do the parade, she would just be like sitting in her car with her sign, no music playing. She's just waving. And he was like, so boring, so lame. And now she's got, you know, the decked out car kind of float situation they always have these really elaborate costumes or like the one in the documentary they're wearing like toilet seats on their heads I can't remember what the point of it was but I feel like I remember that reference and um, her friend dresses as a perfect impersonation of her and at the end of the documentary it's so cute it's a scene of her in the pride parade with that friend blasting the song Gloria by Laura Branigan Gloria had a lot of really high-profile clients as well. She represented the family of Nicole Brown Simpson during the trial of O.J. Simpson for her murder. The Brown family felt that her sister was not getting a clear and fair representation in the trial, and Gloria worked with them to ensure that Nicole's life and memory was present. She often came at these things from a PR standpoint since the victim doesn't receive a lawyer in the trial and used the moment as an opportunity to talk publicly about domestic violence. In 1987, Gloria and William Allred filed for divorce after almost 20 years of marriage. In the documentary, when she's asked about it, this is the one time that she kind of shuts up. She's been asked about her ex-husband and the divorce over and over throughout the years, and she has always maintained that she wants to keep that part of her life private. The only thing she did say in the interview was that she felt, quote, betrayed by him. What we do know is that a year after they divorced, William was convicted on charges of conspiring to defraud the government. Gloria and her firm actually represented him in his criminal trial. The court case surrounding the divorce was also heavily publicized, Allred v. Allred. Gloria was awarded $4 million in the divorce, and William contested it in a 1992 bankruptcy hearing. He told the Los Angeles Times, It's the height of hypocrisy for her to do this. I put her through law school, and now she's going to take everything I ever earned. I don't think feminists would approve of that. Feminists believe in equal rights for men and women. When Gloria was asked to comment on what her ex said years later, she said, I've never seen that article. I'm not aware of any such quotes. Gloria represented the actress Hunter Tylo in 1997, who was fired from her role on Melrose Place after getting pregnant. Gloria helped her win a $5 million settlement on her behalf and took the opportunity to speak out for all pregnant people who were treated unfairly in the workplace. Other high-profile clients include Tiger Woods' mistresses, who were seeking compensation from him in a form of an apology or a possible settlement, Ginger Lee, one of Anthony Weiner's sexting victims, Amber Frey, convicted murderer Scott Peterson's mistress, She also took a paternity suit for former Spice Girl Melanie Brown, and she's represented Jane Roe at one time during Roe v. Wade. She also has successfully argued to remove the expiration date on rape in California. In an article from The Guardian, it reads, At times, it seems as though she won't stop until she's liberated the whole of America. In 2012, she represented a Canadian pageant contestant, Jenna Talakova, who is a trans woman who was being disqualified from a Miss Universe pageant owned by Donald Trump on the grounds that she was transgender. Gloria says that she told Trump, I said something to the effect of, Mr. Trump, we don't care what your anatomy looked like when you were born, and you shouldn't care what her anatomy looked like when she was born. Trump had the most deplorable response, saying, 
Oh, Gloria would probably love to see what's under my pants. Ew! To a reporter, Gloria added, Mr. Trump, you have to understand, the world does not revolve around your penis or anyone else's penis. If it ever did, it doesn't anymore. This is not about genitals. This is about discrimination. Jenna was reinstated into the pageant. With all of her clients, especially her female clients, she sees them as victims of male entitlement who are seeking the justice that they deserve. In that article I mentioned from The New Yorker, it says, quote, For many people, hers is the single name that comes to mind when considering the ambitious pursuit of victims' rights. She is the person to call if you're a cop with a daughter who's been harassed by her military colleagues, or if you're a 62-year-old woman who's finally ready to accuse Roman Polanski of molesting you when you were a teenager. There is no shortage of the Gloria Allred type of case. Like I mentioned in the top of the episode, in recent years, she has been most known for her participation in representing 28 women who accused Bill Cosby of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and or other sexual misconduct. She has also represented three women who have accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct. By all accounts, Gloria absolutely refuses to retire. In the documentary, she said that one of her biggest fears was not living long enough to achieve everything she wants to achieve in the world. Now, we gotta talk about Weinstein. This is twofold. One, her daughter, Lisa Bloom, and her involvement with Weinstein's legal cases. And two, Gloria's history of representing a woman who accused Weinstein long before Me Too. And I want to get the second point out of the way first. Gloria's client signed a secret settlement with Weinstein long before the Me Too movement. Many see that as letting Weinstein off the hook, but sexual assault cases are nearly impossible to win in 2022, let alone 2004 when this happened. To those who look negatively on this decision, Gloria said, Some people may be shocked that lawyers, especially a feminist lawyer like me, would ever assist a client to enter a confidential agreement. The alternative, however, would be to insist that victims be denied the choice to settle their case and be forced to file lawsuits, appear for depositions, answer interrogatories, testify publicly under oath, and take the risk that a jury will not believe them. Even if a jury finds in the victim's favor, the defendant could appeal and the victim may never collect anything at all if the defendant is successful. She went on to say, I fully support victims who choose to go public with their claims, and I equally support victims who want to maintain their privacy and confidentially settle their claims. As a private victim's rights attorney, my duty is to support my client in the choices she makes. And I think that that explains it pretty well and should put that matter to rest. Now, in regards to Lisa. I first heard of Lisa Bloom when I listened to Ronan Farrow's book To Catch and Kill during the lockdown. Lisa was one of Ronan's friends and someone who supported Ronan in his reporting and investigative work into Weinstein, but it came out in the later part of the book that Lisa Bloom had actually been reporting back to Weinstein the whole time on what Ronan was up to. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the book. The last time I answered a call from Lisa Bloom that summer, I expressed astonishment. Lisa, you swore as an attorney and a friend that you wouldn't tell his people, I said. Ronan, she replied. I am his people. I thought of her calls and texts and voicemails pressing me for information, dangling clients. Bloom told me Weinstein had optioned her book, that she'd been in an awkward position. Ronan, you need to come in. I can help. I can talk to David and Harvey. I can make this easier for you. Lisa, this is not appropriate, I said. I don't know what women you're talking to, she said, but I can give you information about them. 
If it's Rose McGowan, we have files on her. I looked into her myself when this first came up. She's crazy. To further explain, Weinstein's company was helping Lisa out with her book, so she supposedly felt beholden to him for some reason, even though she is the daughter of Gloria Allred and he is a sexual predator. Lisa, once all this came out, eventually withdrew from his legal team. Gloria has come forth to say that she wasn't aware that her daughter had taken Weinstein as a client. Of course, with a character as boisterous as Gloria's, she will have her defectors as well. In 2012, The Atlantic described her as a, quote, ambulance chaser of feminism after she defended two men involved in a sexual battery lawsuit against John Travolta. The Daily Beast has called her a publicity hound. To me, all of the negative comments hurled at Gloria is a result of sexism. There are so many men that get on television and scream about what they're passionate about, and we pay them tons of money and praise them for it. When Gloria does it, she's just an angry woman. Today, Gloria still refuses to retire. She's 81 years old and is still working as hard and as often as she did in the 1970s. Not all of her cases make national and international headlines, but she works tirelessly to take on every bit of injustice she encounters in her life in order to make it better for those who come after she's gone. Whenever we do lose Gloria, we will lose our number one defender of our rights. And that is Gloria Allred, everybody, or at least as much as my fingers could type and my brain could handle for this week. I highly, highly recommend watching the documentary, seeing Allred. Uh, her personality is just lovely. There are so many powerful moments in that documentary that you just have to be able to see for yourself. So I highly, highly recommend it. And I hope that you really enjoyed learning more about one of the most famous feminist lawyers of all time. If there's someone or something you want me to talk about in the future on the show, please feel free to email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. There's a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And last but certainly not least, you know I'm going to ask you for more reviews. If you haven't done so already, please go over to that Apple Podcast app and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show to help others find me as well. You can also rate the show on Spotify. All right, my mom asked if she could be part of the sign-out, so one second. You might hear Dorothy crying in the background, but that's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to, to rage, rage on. on. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Bye. Hi, my name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I am Kristen Russo. And together, we run Buffering, a rewatch adventure a family of podcasts moving through our favorite 90s genre television. If you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, great news for you. Our very first podcast adventure took us through all seven seasons of the series. We covered it spoiler-free, episode by episode. For those of you who want to start the show for the first time, you can find that podcast pretty easily. It's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Inside that podcast, you'll also find an original song that pairs with each glorious episode of Buffy, and original character jingles for so many of our Buffy favorites. Buffering has been praised in places like Time, Esquire, Paste Magazine, and the New York Times, and we've chatted with dozens of cast members, writers, directors, and fans along the way. Come hang out and rewatch some of your favorite television with us and a wonderful community of listeners. Learn more at BufferingCast.com or find us on socials at BufferingCast.